welcome to the Trostics Wild Apothecary podcast, where we explore lifestyle medicine through interviews with herbalists, foragers, foodies, and movement practitioners. I'm your host, Rox. You can find out more about me, my online course, workshops, and clinics at www.trostockswildapothecary.com. So today's podcast, I'm talking to Irish herbalist Nikki Darrell about her book published by Aeon Books, conversations with plants the path back to nature and also about her courses so the book is kind of based on her um herbal her herbal apprenticeship course and it is talks about how you can connect with the plants how you can use them as medicine and kitchen pharmacy in growing the plants and about her views on the three cauldrons of the body and how you can uh, how they can create disease and how you can bring them back into harmony so I'm just going to read a little excerpt from the book. Um, when we reawaken, our multiple senses turn on. We start to feel the world, taste it, hear it, smell it, see it. And with those senses that can sense the invisibles, we start to access knowledge, information and wisdom directly from the world. We perceive with our hearts, our guts and those senses that have been dulled by civilization and domestication by the perceived mechanization of the universe. We, be connect, we, come, we become connected to the visible and invisible. It can feel quite strange and overwhelming, but it is safe. Being wild is much safer than being tamed. So I hope you enjoy today's podcast with Nikki. Rocks. Hey Nikki, so I thought maybe we could start off by you just explaining who you are and what you do. Okay, um, well my name's Nikki Darrell, um, I live in Ireland, I've lived in, I lived in Cork for 23 years and we've just moved up to Gorey uh, where we have about five acres of land which is very exciting. Um, I suppose I from a very young age, I wanted to be a herbalist. I, I was always fascinated by plants and the healing that they offer and uh, just all the amazing things they do. Um, I think I brought my first book on herbs when I was about 11. Started growing, I always helped my dad in his garden from quite a young age and he'd have us eating all the weeds because um, it was um, sometimes challenging the amount of weeds in comparison to the vegetables growing. So I learned about foraging food um, and things like that from a young age and was fascinated with the amazing um, medicines from plants. Um, but um, when I was looking to go and study, um, I couldn't find anywhere to study to be a herbalist. So I went to university and studied to be a horticultural and plant scientist instead um, and ended up working as a research scientist for a while and in my last research job um, I made friends with some people who were actually studying to be herbalists and decided I wanted to go back to my real passion um, and study to be a herbalist myself um so that was a bit of a long and winding path but I started, started to be a herbalist and when I graduated I really felt like um herbal medicine and working with the plants is 
such a big part of our heritage and who we are as, as humans. So I started running some very simple courses on either growing the herbs at home, on how to use some of the herbs that grow around us, and some of the things we're familiar with in our kitchens. So um, even, you know, some of the usual things like the ginger and the cinnamon, how to use them to make our own medicines and to keep our families healthy. So I ran that for a, a good few years. And then some of the people who'd done that course said, we'd like to do a little bit more. <clears throat> and this sort of coincided with um, a couple of things. Um, one of them was um, certain people in the world of herbal medicine saying, in order to be a herbalist, when I, when I trained as a herbalist, you got a diploma. And then some of the uh, degrees were developed. Um, and, you know, that was great in some ways. But what became apparent was with the degree courses, because they were, had to be registered as either a BSc or a BA, they were registered as um, BSCs. So they got a very much more a scientific bias. And whole chunks of what herbal medicine and our relationship with plants is about were, started to be sort of sidelined. And even in my own training, it was very clinical, very science-based, and some of the more traditional ways of working with the plants was a bit sidelined. So around the same time, there was a, a group of people who were really trying to put forward the idea that actually even a, a degree wasn't good enough, that you needed a master's to be a real herbalist. And I, I kind of woke up one day and said to myself, this is rubbish because this is traditional healing. The reason that herbal medicine has, has been there through the whole course of history, this has been peasants and women and ordinary people relating to the plants around them, um, passing down information about how to work with them. And it is wrong for it to be turned into an academic qualification and a profession that sidelines all of that amazing work done by the women and the peasants and so on. Um, and the fact that across the, you know, the globe, 80% of people rely on their local plants for their medicine and so on. Um, and I, can, I will always remember one of my lecturers saying at one point, those women who practice part-time whilst raising their children, it's like, but this is what has always been, herbal medicine, and it's a very valuable form of medicine. And yes, okay, alongside of that, there would have been the apothecaries and there would have been the physicians and so on. But that's, you know, it was, there was great respect between the different strands. Um, so so I, I decided I would set up the apprenticeship in um, community herbalism for people who really wanted to use the herbs for their friends and family and maybe for the animals on their small holdings and to take care of their plants and as a way of taking care of the environment and their own ecosystems and a way of promoting biodiversity and all of that kind of thing. Um, so I set up the apprenticeship, which is a two-year part-time training. So we, we have the classes and then in between times people go away and work with the plants and grow them and choose their plants to do their plant profiles on and um, the ones that, that are going to be their closest allies. So we encourage them over the two years to pick 20 plants that they feel are the ones they're particularly connected to. 
Um, and when the apprenticeship had been running for two years, we were, I was approached by um, actually a third level institution who had a group of students who had been promised a master's level training and then that had fallen through. So they asked me, could I do anything to help out the students? And at that stage, I, because of my science background, had sat on all sorts of different committees and things and been met lots of um, real shining lights in herbal medicine. So I said, we can put together a lecturing um, team and so on, and we, could, we can put that together. So we were following through that pr process. And then the third level is institution reneged on the idea of stand, standing with that program. So I sat back and I thought, well, I happen to have just completed a master's in cooperative and social enterprise. So I turned around to the prospective students and said, well, we run this as a community supported educational enterprise. And they said, yes, we want our training. So yes, please. So we ran it like that for two years and now it's changed because in the meantime, Alex, well, various things changed, but Alex, my husband, uh, came along and really the work he was doing uh, with the, his Grona Geo project, which is where we're living now, um, the work with the Veritas Herbal Apprenticeship and the, the clinical training were all brought under one umbrella um, and are now sort of turning into a cooperative enterprise as we are developing some sister schools and various things are happening. So it all came up very much of a desire of connecting people with this part of their heritage and also working with our local plants because there had been a trend um, in the whole world of, of herbal medicine and so on in two directions. One was to be saying that the exotic plants had stronger medicine than our local ones, which just isn't true. And I mean, that's something we've worked on experientially very much over the last 10 years is really looking at some of the very humble plants like daisy. It's much better than arnica. Plantain is incredible. Um, you know, nettles, um, elderberry, um, so many of the plants that grow just outside our doors and are thought of as weeds, um, dandelions and so on. They're, they're getting valid, validated more and more by, by research to show they're incredibly powerful, they're cheaper, they're accessible to people who are marginalized and so on, which plant medicine has always been the medicine of marginalized people. Um, the other thing that had started to happen was everything had to be turned into a pill or a tincture or in, you know, and in a little packet in a whole food shop mm -hmm. and standardized extracts rather than whole plant extracts, being able to go out and pick your own stuff. People w would say, well, surely the tinctures and pills are stronger than using a tea or putting the herbs in your food. And that's just not true. So it's making things affordable, making them local, uh, and things that we can prepare at home. Um, so traditionally, people would have put herbs into their food, into things like poultices, they would have made syrups, they would have dried things for teas, um, they would have lacto-fermented herbs for the winter, made hetero wines and mead and so on. And these things were all ways of keeping healthy. 
So the other thing that had happened in herbal medicine and in our healthcare in general was a little bit of a move, movement from the well-being paradigm, how do we keep ourselves healthy, to um, a sickness and pathology paradigm. So, you know, nowadays, um, so many things, like menopause, it's not an illness, it is a natural progression. Pregnancy is not an illness. Um, you know, so many of the things that shift and change in us, they are, they're not necessarily illnesses, but they have been pathologized. Um, and the idea of self-care and keeping ourselves healthy, which is where putting the local plants into our diet, because they're jam-packed full of antioxidants and so on, and eating the variety of them rather than, oh, carrots are the thing to eat or broccoli is yeah. the thing to eat. It's like actually this going out and grazing, eating what's in season, because what's there in the seasons in the winter, there's lots of roots with inulin, which protect our immune system. In the autumn, we've got all those berries that prepare us for the change to the winter. In the spring, all those fresh green sprouts that help get our metabolisms going again after the winter. Um, so when we get in touch with what's around us and working with the seasons, we're immediately moving towards more health. We tend to slow down, we tend to eat less junk, we tend to feel this need to acquire lots of things. Um, and we're working in harmony with the, nat the rest of the natural world because we're part of the natural world as well. So do you have, because um, I noticed that you've got the nature wisdom path, is, is that from your husband's cooperation with it? And is that, um, is, does that come into the apprenticeship scheme as it well? It does, very much. Um, the reason why Alex came to visit me one day was because I seemed to be the only person in the country who could understand <laughs> what he was talking about with this desire to develop the nature um, wisdom work. So he turned up one day and, um, and he, we, we, he, he never went home. <laughs> so, well, he did for a little while, but we, we worked together. And what we realized was a lot of what he was talking about was woven into the apprenticeship anyway. But um, we, I guess we worked with making it more formalized, if you like, to, to help people connect with it rather than it being a, a little bit of an invisible thread in, it, in the apprenticeship. It's to really um, provide people with a way of, of putting this into a, a, a sort of a structure so that they can bring it into their meditations, they can bring it into the way that they're working with the plants and so on. So in the last um, two years of running the apprenticeship, what we do is we actually do some of the nature healing work with them as like a, an hour in, in a workshop block to take them through the steps which are very much relaxing into your own body slowing down getting into the heart resonance place awakening the innocent child um, connection with the imagination or the less cerebral way of accessing because a lot of the ways in which the natural world communicates with us um, is not um, verbal so you go and sit with a dandelion plant and it's very unlikely to sort of go, I am a dandelion plant, I am good for the liver and so on. Though it's funny, they do that sometimes. But it's more likely to be, 
you sit with the plant and you will get a sense you know a lot of the plants the way they grow gives us hints so like an angelica plant with the big leaves good for the lungs the red on the stems it's a great blood builder the um the globe of the flowers and seeds very much like the the auric protection for the head and so on so sometimes it's something like that or sometimes it will be people will feel an emotional tone change so that might be the uh the the state that that plant helps you get to so a lot of people with rose bay willow herb will say i just felt happy it's like all the trauma disappeared because that's rose bay willow herb is very good for clearing trauma or somebody uh, <laughs> i always remember one of the students um sitting with a, a mullein plant and they came over to me afterwards and they were like i don't know but i couldn't get it right and i went come on you you know you know this one i, I was like that's that's the plant telling you the emotional tone because mullen is good for grief and especially that grief of the sort of the wounded child who's like, I can't get it right. Um, so it might be an emotional tone like that, or people might get a memory from childhood, or they might get a sense of, they might remember a poem or a, a song or something like that, which gives them a hint. Or sometimes they'll just go, I don't know, it feels like something I need to do a bit more work with it. Or they might get a sense of, I feel warmer, colder, I can breathe easier, or whatever. So it's not very verbal in general. Um, so that's why we, the heart connection and the work with the innocent child. Um, and then we, we practice some loving appreciation, which is very much, rather than going up to a plant and going, what are you good for? Going up to the plant and going, you know, actually that loving appreciation, which we all respond to and asking the plant what would you like to tell me about and then maybe following that with could you give me some hints with um what you might be helpful for um and although i know when i started the apprenticeship which was 12 years ago talking about things like that or talking about the gut microbiome or heart resonance people were like it's all pretty way out there Whereas now they're mainstream and even this thing of plants being conscious and sentient um, and the microbiome of the soil and the soil as an ecosystem, they're in mainstream now. And this idea that plants can communicate, that they can see us, that they can hear us, um, that they can actually communicate to us is no longer something that people think is so weird. It's actually becoming, yep, this stuff works um so it's very much woven into the apprenticeship not just communicating with the plants but weaving into how we teach people about making the different medicines how we teach them about sitting with their patients as well because only a small proportion of what we pick up from people is verbal and actually a lot of the information we get is actually more from the non-verbal communication so yeah, the the um, the nature wisdom work is is brought into the apprenticeship, in, I suppose, in a little bit more of a formalised way now. And then we have um, a, a standalone training with that, which is is going in a, a slightly um, different direction, working with the nature communication, but also as a a, a path for spiritual development as well. Yeah, I saw that because I I always. I don't know, I kind of, I, 
I feel quite drawn to, you know, herbalism and wild foods and seasonal foods and stuff. But I, I've always feel there's this kind of bit missing, which is like the spiritual connection, which I can never, I've never been able to find anybody who's not teaching it, but like, well, yeah, teaching or lead, helping you to develop this awareness or this knowledge, if you want to. Yes, and it's, it's a bit crazy because um, even if you read someone like Tommy Bartram's book, I don't know if you've come across him, he hints at it in it. It's mm -hmm. very interesting. And it used to be there, but there was a point where it was taken out of medicine and the whole vitalism concept was taken out. And it started to happen to herbal medicine. So I know when I did my herbal training, um, I qualified in 1999, because I qualified the year after my daughter was born. So that was 99. I came away from herbal college going, I kind of feel like there was something missing. Um, I'd spent a lot of time in the world of science and I'd been asked to do things in the herbal world because I had that science background and so on and I came away going no there was something missing the where is all the stuff because plants don't just treat the physical they treat they are physical mental emotional spiritual beings and they work with us on all those levels the funny thing is even if we only use them in the reductionist way they will work on the other levels. Um, and you, you'll see that repeatedly. The plants will do their work anyway. Um, but I came away feeling that, and it was a bit of a pass to actually find my way with all of that. And that, that was a long and winding path. But it's even like within herbal medicine, Western herbal medicine these days, when they started looking at energetics, it was like the people go, oh, we have to borrow from Ayurveda or TCM, rather than remembering we have the Galenics here. And we also have a lot of traditions in this part of the world about the seasonal cycles, working with those, um, we, with the different elements, working with those, uh, working with the three cauldrons is a concept from this part of the world, which is very similar to the three Dantians, but so the lower cauldron being very much the physical well-being, and that needs to be full before we work on the middle cauldron, which is our emotional, vocational, heart-centered place. And really, when that only when that is the right way up and full, can we advance to the cauldron of inspiration. Now we we work with them all all the time. So I mean, people would say, "Oh yes, so young children can't do the inspiration bit." Well, actually, I think a lot of people find when they go out into nature with some kids with them because kids don't have their brains full of all that data dumping and left near cortex. They'll go out and they say, oh, this plant really feels like and it reminds me of, and this taste makes me feel all zingy. This one makes me feel nice and sleepy and so on. So it's, you know, anyway, what I'm trying to say is that we, we have lots from this part of the world, but we've tended to feel we have to look somewhere else, mainly because of the influences of reductionist science. So I suppose as well, we don't seem to, it's, it's quite, it feels like it's quite a lot of, it's forgotten. I mean, is, do you think it's more, yeah. more present there in Ireland? I think when we get away from the cities, it's more present. So I would have friends down in the West Country 
and they've still got it down there. Or if you go into the highlands of Scotland, I've got a couple of lovely books about Scottish highland herbal traditions and so on. So there's pockets of it around. And in Ireland, I suppose one of the things we had here was in the 1930s, the Folklore Commission sent all the school kids out to talk to people in the countryside to ask about a lot of the folk stuff and the traditional stuff. So we've got, we've got a lot of it recorded here. But um, I, think, I think you get it more when you're away from the cities. So there isn't a lot of it in Dublin, <laughs> for instance. Dublin's just a big city, like all big cities. Um, I think there is still a lot of it tucked away quietly. And the other thing I notice is when we start talking about this stuff, and when we start doing the work with people, people go, I remember. I remember now when I was a kid. So we are born with this. And it is trained out of us. So it's like, it's not something that is actually, it's not so much alien to people. I think saying, oh, we have forgotten it is a very good way of saying it because it's almost in, in the process of our rearing. We are encouraged to forget it. But just a little bit of helping to remember it comes back and repeating it. So we often find that students say, oh yeah, I really got it at the weekend. Then I went back to working in the office five days a week and it slipped a bit. And so it's like, that's why we don't do an intensive apprenticeship. That's why we spread it out over the two years so that people have got that reiterative process yeah. because that's really important for people. So I, I actually feel everybody has it within them that they're born with the, the capacity, some more than others, and in different ways. So we'll sometimes have students who are like, I can't do that communication with plants, but then they talk about all their wonderful fermentations of fermented vegetables, of different things like that. And they are obviously in this big nonverbal communication with all the little microbes in those things and what to pick to make a good ferment. And they're making amazing skin creams and things. So their communication is in this really practical manner. And often these are very phlegmatic people. They're good and solid. They don't want the airy-fairy stuff. And sometimes we find the people who try to make it very airy-fairy and um, bringing in a lot of the symbolism stuff and the angels and all of that, they're not quite getting it, actually. They're on another track. So, th so this stuff is very earth-centered, you know. It's, um, it's a spiritual path that's very much about connecting with the natural world around us, with nature, with the earth, with having, um, you know, soil under your fingernails, which at this time of year I always have, and, and that kind of thing. Um, it's, not, it, it's not something that you do sitting in a, in a church. Well, maybe some church do have that. It's more about getting out with nature and, and letting nature into your home as well. So having your plants sprouting your seeds, um, you know, using really natural things in the house and that kind of thing um, is very much part of it. Yeah. I was, I was listening to somebody talking about the Native American um, tradition and how they thought of plants as being like family members. Hmm. Do you think people over here would have thought in this along similar kind of lines? Or? Yeah, we've done, we've done quite a lot of research into all of this. 
And the similarities, now you have to go back about seven to 10,000 years before the, I forgot what they're called, but the people from the North came and changed everything. People would have lived in a very similar way. And I always make this um, distinction. They did not worship nature because they were, everything was sacred and they saw themselves as part of the natural web. So the, the trees were their neighbors and their family, the, the insects, the, you know, the hedgehogs, the badgers, the, in those days where there were wolves and bears, it, it was like they, they were, they were part of the natural web and they knew that and they were working with the rest of the natural web was very much about understanding the generosity of nature that provided enough food and shelter and so on. And uh, it, there was a reciprocity there. So they looked after the trees. They moved the saplings that had seeded too, too close to each other. They helped to trim off the dead branches. They helped that kind of thing. They, so it was very much a reciprocity in it. And in return, they got what they needed. Um, so it wasn't nature worshipping. It was knowing that they were part of the ecosystem talking to the river, checking in on its health, noticing if the river had got clogged by something, noticing if they were building a dwelling or something like that. Um, they would listen to the, the land and the wind and make sure it was built in the right place. Um, so very similar and very similar to the way a lot of the cultures that still are living close to nature do it. Um, if you talk to the, the Aboriginal people in Australia or um, some of the people in South America, um, they're very much still living in this way. Um, but something happened in this part of the world so that we moved from being sort of seeing ourselves that way and from a matrifocal kind of way of being. And I, if, again, I choose that term very carefully because our communities were focused around the, the, the women and the children and the men would have understood the need to protect the women and the children in their times of vulnerability. Um, so during childbirth and early child rearing, um, they would have seen the need to support and nurture and protect. Um, so it wasn't a matriarchy, it wasn't that the women were in charge, but they were normally matrilinear because they, everybody knew who their mother was. But children were seen as the children of the community um, and they were matrivocal in the understanding that giving birth and child rearing is a, a hard job all of its own, <laughs> that deserved, deserved its own rewards. And the older people were very respected because they had lived through things. And the children were really valued as growing up to be themselves rather than being told who they were. Mm -hmm. um, and, and yes, so very much the trees and the birds and all of these were seen as neighbors, friends, family. Um, and within the small region. Um, but then the changes came that brought in patriarchy and dominator models that moved finally to the capitalist model, which is both a dominator model and a patriarchal one. So, 
Yeah, we'd probably be in a totally different state of affairs now if we had kept the old model. <laughs> we would be in an incredibly different place. We would really be living in a paradise. I mean, okay, you'd still get hard winters sometimes. There'd still be things that happened like that, but we would we would be living in a very different way um, and a much less stressful one, um, much more harmonious one, much more equitable one far less marginalized people, everybody taken care of, everybody valued for who they are and so on. So yeah, definitely. So I suppose the thing, the, where the book came from was that um, a few years ago, um, one of the students said, why don't you put the material into a couple of books rather than lots of course notes? I thought about it and, and I had got quite burnt out at the time because I had been working too hard and um, there was just me doing things. So I said, right, okay, I don't know if you can put this all into book form because a lot of it would have been storytelling and so on. I said, I'll have a go at it. So I did two course books, one for the first year and one for the second year. And then um, Melinda and Ollie from Eon Books asked me, could they publish them? And I said, well, there's a slight problem with that, just as um, the way that the books, one, they needed revising, because as soon as you write a book, new information comes in. And also because they were like the course books, um, and it, it was just a problem with how um, publishing contracts work and availability. So I said, but what I can do is I can write you a new book which is a combination of material from the whole apprenticeship and some other ideas that have come in. So that's how the book that Eon published came into being, was sort of um, what I felt were the core important bits. It's got, yeah, I have, I've start, I have it here. Mm -hmm. um, I've started looking through it. I haven't, there's so much in it that I haven't got through it all yet, but it's, it seems like there's a lot, lot of information in there. Mm. Some stuff that, yeah, I haven't seen in other places, which is well, good. That's good. Yeah. I mean, it's impossible to put everything in, but um, hopefully what I hoped with the book was to really that thing of anyone can do this. It can be affordable. You don't have to fly off to a rainforest to learn to connect with nature. You can do it with the dandelions coming up through the cracks in the pavement if that's all you've got. Um, and listening to the birds that sing outside your window, you know, it's like this is this is plants and people together um, and making things affordable, things that the whole idea of, you know, even when I when I was a kid, um, you, the medicine cupboard at home, yes, had maybe some paracetamol in it, but then it, the medicine cupboard had lots of things like live yogurt, cinnamon, um, benzoin for my brother's um, steam inhalation, cinnamon for upset tummies, um, you know, ginger for upset tummies, peppermint. Um, very, you know, it was, wasn't all sort of uniflu and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and talking to some of my friends from Eastern Europe, um, and sometimes, you know, my Polish isn't, is non-existent. Their, their English isn't great. But talking about some of the bits like 
um, oh yeah, we would have we would use marjoram like you guys use thyme and another friend from Romania, oh, we would make a syrup from the stalks of the cherry. And this was all their home folk medicine rather than what you had to go to the pharmacy to get, you know. Um, and actually, like my, my dad was a doctor and my mum was a, a, a health visitor, a nurse. Um, but that stuff was still standard in sort of what people did. And if you went to the doctor, you were still told, go home and rest. Are you drinking enough fluids? And, you know, are you eating your fruit and veg? And that kind of thing. So there was a, it, it, it was still very ex existent and, and it still is in a lot of places, you know. So it's making it affordable, giving us more empowerment over our own healthcare as well. Yes, there's a time when we need to go to see someone with more training and experience, but there's so, so many bits that we can take care of and that empowers us. Yeah. Thank you. Good, you're very welcome.